In response to one of our election panels in October, one person tweeted, maybe the most depressing podcast I have ever listened to. I guess they felt it was too mean because they deleted it later that day. But honestly, it wasn't mean. I get it. I really, truly do. Not for a lack of trying. I really wanted to help inspire people to engage in the municipal election. I didn't want to add to the narrative that we were marching towards a gloomy, foregone conclusion where nothing anyone said or did during the race mattered. But, for a variety of reasons, some known and some we can only speculate about, the status quo won out. Not only that, but the apathy I was trying my best not to contribute to was obviously epidemic, because only a pitiful 29% of eligible voters actually cast their ballot. In the immediate days after the Toronto election, it was hard to be optimistic about the next four years. I've been pretty upfront in my belief that I don't think John Tory is the best person to hold the mayor's office. I think that's been borne out in recent revelations that he was quietly petitioning Doug Ford for even more undemocratic so-called strong mayor powers than we were even aware of. Not that he mentioned anything about it on the campaign trail, probably because that would have been something that could have actually turned the tide against him. That's the kind of skullduggery I've come to expect from Mayor Tory and his allies, and that's why the idea of him effortlessly sauntering back into power, barely showing up for debates, telling everyone he was working for them when anyone can look out their front door for evidence to the contrary, yeah, it's depressing. But that's politics. And it would be irresponsibly melancholy of me to pretend that this new council doesn't represent at least the possibility for change. So, I'm going to do my best to shake off whatever doldrums I felt immediately after the election and ask, what now? What's next for the city I can't help but love? This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting off the tail end of a thankfully non-COVID cold, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, just in time for the holidays, Spacing and ERA Architects are launching a new book called The Signs That Define Toronto. I talked to Kurt Krayler, one of the book's editors, about why signage is important to the history and culture of a city. But first, Spacing Senior Editor and Co-Founder Sean McAuliffe helps me make sense of the election that just happened, the good old days of urbanist optimism, and what it would take to find that energy again. Stand by. Sean, I wanted to get maybe the most painful thing of the the election out of the way first, uh, so we can just you know, maybe exercise it and, and then and see where we go from there. But I think a lot of people who cover these things were really disheartened by the turnout. Uh, 29% voter turnout is the number that uh, that I, I think was published. And uh, I'm wondering if, if you have thoughts about that. Uh, personally, I was wondering if it's maybe a legacy of the pandemic, not just the burnout that we talk about, but also that we spent two years for for reasons, important reasons, but 
two years with a sort of, uh, you know, very strong mayor and, and council, just kind of emergency special powers. And we just sort of did what we were told, or most of us did, and uh, kept our heads down. And I wonder if there's a carryover from that that's just, you know, we got used to just eh, the, the government's going to do what governments do. Or if, you know, that's my theory, it could be partly that, it could be none of that. So maybe you have a theory yourself. Yeah, I think it's a, little, a bunch of things at once. I mean, the pandemic, you know, the city of Toronto more or less ran the pandemic well. Uh, Toronto Public Health, you know, heroes and all that. Um, I have my own uh, issues with certain other kind of tangential parts or adjacent parts to the pandemic, like making life better for people in apartments, allowing people to drink in the park, something, you know, small things like that, that uh, council and the mayor kind of went AWOL uh, on because I think there's a disconnect between how people actually live in the city and our ruling class. So it kind of, you know, the pandemic, it was the biggest thing in our lives, I would say, and or a lot of our lives, and it distracted people and all the other kind of city issues probably went on the back burner, even though I think at, here at Spacing, we would argue that, you know, a lot of this public space stuff that we've been talking about for 18 years now really came to a head in during the pandemic because um, public space was the safest place to be outside and and all the limitations and constraints on it really were kind of exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, but probably for the average person, you know, being, you know, just figuring out how to get back on their feet, get come back to some semblance of normal, you know, see your family again, see people again. The municipal election, which is always sort of on the back burner of people's minds, the backest burner <laughs> um, beyond the other burners of elections at the provincial and federal level. Um, it was even more, uh, you know, back there. Um, but the turnout, you know, when you think, I, I just kind of look at the the races, you know, you had Tory with so much political capital, you know, what there's, and and his competitor kind of came in late. No, no guff on that, but um, it's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's just kind of, you know, you see the same names everywhere and there's so many incumbents running again on the left and the right that, you know, a, a young person maybe, you know, seeing these same names who have been in there for 20 years, I could see how people would think voting doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, these same people keep getting in as a city of 3 million people almost. And, and yet it's the same names all the time. So it's, I think a whole bunch of things adding to that kind of disconnect and people just kind of tuning it out. Yeah. I mean, uh, early as a kind of, uh, you know, preview of, of the election, we had a colleague, John Lawrence on, uh, and he warns not to speak about this election as a foregone conclusion, because that then we, we might accidentally be playing into this voter apathy. But it is kind of hard sometimes when you, you see the writing on the wall, you've covered a number of races and you, you know what it takes to unseat an incumbent like John Tory, uh, and, and what's not going to make the cut. Yeah, it was kind of difficult to write about or tricky to write about, really, uh, that you don't want to make it a foregone conclusion. But then there's a reality of like the guy has all this, Tory has all this, you know, uh, incumbent momentum and, and power. And you kind of have to talk about that as a thing because it is a thing. Yeah. So it was a bit tricky to try to write about that in a way that I, I think I tried, probably failed, I don't know, to write about it in a way that it's beatable or it's challengeable, but it's still formidable. So like, don't sit it out. We need everyone to kind of get involved, but at the same time, not scaring them away. So it's an odd thing. We focused mostly on the, on the show on the mayoral race and that played out largely how the tea leaves said, said it would, but uh, 
there are some exciting new counselors, uh, largely because incumbents just stepped down for various reasons, COVID, council being slashed in half, whatever. And so that is exciting. Uh, so one, one such counselor even uh, did uh, unseat an incumbent. That's uh, Amber Morley uh, unseated uh, Mark Grimes, uh, long-term incumbent. And there are like a, a bunch of new faces, uh, largely progressive, largely people of color, specifically women of color. It remains to be seen, and they're going to have uh, a difficult time with the new provincial uh, background of meddling in in the way that council works. But uh, do you take any uh, excitement uh, from from that outcome? Yeah, I think we've been so distracted by a whole bunch of things, including the mayor's kind of rolling into the third term and and the chaos that Ontario is in right now. Um, I was thinking this morning about how many fronts of the, the war or the challenge, you know, of, of conflict there are in Ontario. You know, it's, I, I haven't felt this amount of, uh, as a lifelong Ontarioan in, in 25 years, maybe like the, the amount of chaos from education to the green belt to the, um, the radical changes happening to municipalities and strong mayor and all that. It's kind of hard to keep track of it all. But I think the, the over the, the, the change on council, I think maybe once one or two or three council meetings actually happen and we see people actually kind of how it congeals. Um, it might be pretty interesting because there was, you know, it's probably the, one of the most diverse councils Toronto's ever had, if not the uh, megacity Toronto and probably um, pre-megacity uh, Toronto. But you mentioned uh, Amber Morley, like that's such an interesting one. That's the biggest riding, I think, in biggest ward, sorry, in in Toronto since um, since 2018, since the cutting. And it's something like 130,000 uh, people live in that riding. That's like the city of... Kingston. Yeah. Right. And it's just one, one representative. So this whole idea that, uh, I mean, we can't, we've talked about that already. The absurdity of that is wild, but that, that one uh, person could uh, unseat this longstanding guy, Mark Grimes, I think really shows that despite the mayor rolling into like easily into a, another term, there is discontent there. Because mm-hmm. you know Grimes was uh, you know like lockstep with the with the mayor on so many things, so it's it's such a weird thing because you'll see like at one level the mayor can have you know easily easily breeze into another you know election victory, but then people he's with don't. I mean, some of his endorsements didn't work. He endorsed Grant Gonzalez in Davenport, and he was decimated by Alejandro Bravo, who won quite handily. And who else did he endorse? Syria Grell in Parkdale High Park. Um, and, and she came in third. Mm-hmm. So like the mayor's, you know, the mayor's golden touch wasn't so golden, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. All this talk about strong mayors and, and now, uh, the, the day we're recording this, uh, we found out that, uh, Tory during the election was quietly lobby- lobbying for even stronger mayor powers. We don't have to get super into that. I only mention it to say we don't really know what the mechanics of council are going to look like for the next four years. But until that actually plays out, I am just going to take it at face value that these new faces, uh, younger, you know, uh, people with new ideas, I mean, that's got to be a positive in some way. And even if it, even if it amounts to just standing up and being counted and, and bringing a, an alternative viewpoint uh, officially on the council floor. Yeah. In my, in my own kind of way of thinking, you know, during the election, I was kind of critical of the left in Toronto. And I really worried about kind of the anointed lefty, you know, baton handing because I don't think the left in Toronto has been all like 
there, there, there was a lot of room for improvement. There was a lot of kind of status quo holding up on the left as much as the right, I think, and this sort of uh, path-dependent way of doing things that didn't really work anymore. And so I was a little critical during the election, but now that the election has been set and we have these new counselors, I've tried to force myself to kind of approach it like a clean slate, like everyone will start new and imagine it without the kind of baggage that they came from. And and we'll see how it plays out because, you know, once you're on council, it's a different thing and you have to deal with, you know, the other counselors and, and all that is a new kind of social political scene, which is actually quite exciting to watch. Um, so, you know, as, as city hall watchers, which I, th- I still think is the best political theater in all of Canada, yeah. um, not just Toronto city hall, but like Mississauga city hall, Maybe Brampton is probably the most exciting <laughs> because mm-hmm, it's, yeah. it's no, okay. I'll stop talking about Brampton. Um, but yeah, any city hall is just, it's just really exciting because it's like so such grassroots politics and fighting it out in front of us versus, you know, hidden in, in the caucuses of, of upper levels of government. So it is kind of going to be exciting to watch that, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, the turnaround from uh, debate to on the ground action uh, is much shorter than, some federal bill that gets kicked around for months, maybe years. Uh, yeah, it's, I agree. It's, it's, it's still entertaining, even if it's sometimes frustrating. Yeah. You know, we talk sometimes you and I, uh, without microphones and, uh, we, we were talking, uh, this summer about sort of our different paths to this urbanisty, you know, advocacy, journalism, you know, civic boosterism thing that, uh, that we do. And, uh, you know, you had kind of commented that you, you started in really heady times, whereas I started during the sort of Rob Ford disaster years where nobody knew what was going to happen. And, uh, we just kind of hoped for the best. You wrote a column uh, right after the election, kind of looking back at those, um, those more optimistic times, uh, times that they used to call Torontopia. First, I wanted to ask, like, you know, what, what was that like at the time? I, I had just come to Toronto, uh, you know, what, what was the vibe? It was a lot of fun. This was like circa 2005 ish. The book called Utopia, U capital T O P A, uh, was published by Coach House Press, which was a collection of essays and anthology of essays about Toronto that were, a lot of them were really positive and forward thinking and excited about the city. Some of them were critical of the city. Um, but it was all this kind of alchemy and, and stew of uh, exciting civic, uh, thinking. That was, I think, rather optimistic. There's this, you know, even with the critical pieces, it was like, oh, we can fix this. You can fight City Hall. And I, I, I arrived to Toronto five years before that in 2000. And I was really excited about Toronto because I, you know, I, I always wanted to live here. When I got here, I was just like, yeah, Toronto. And I could tell that there was this melancholy in the city from uh, like a hangover from the uh, amalgamation, which happened a couple of years before that. And then under Mel Lastman, there were a couple of scandals, the computer leasing scandal. And then he was doing, he said some weird things and shook hands with bikers. And there's, so there's, there's like that level of kind of malaise, but then there is this other thing kind of growing mm-hmm. that was just sort of just this pride in Toronto. And it's like this, oh, we're falling in love with the city. Like people were recognizing that this is actually an interesting kind of good place to live. And, and that's around the time Spacing Magazine started. Mm-hmm. And then there were a whole bunch of like the music scene and art scene in Toronto were all kind of bubbling up in, in different parallel ways. So it was kind of an exciting time. And it seemed like, you know, there was a regime change at City Hall. Uh, Miller came in. 
And it felt like, you know, like, uh, and, and I think I've, I've argued, I argued in that column that I, even if it wasn't Miller, it could have been, it didn't have to be a left wing mayor. It could have been, you know, a, uh, a forward thinking right ish mayor, which I think Tory has always had the potential to do. Though I think after all these years, I don't think it's going to come, mm-hmm. but, um, it was just an interesting, exciting time. And, and it's felt like there were so many people engaged and engaging, like more and more people were kind of getting involved in, in civic politics in some way. So, and that lasted for, you know, five, six years until 2010. And then it's like, ah, oh, there's this other thing, the F- Rob Ford came in. Right. I mean, y- you know, we can, we can look forward uh, from there, but uh, I, I did want to just, uh, you mentioned amalgamation and that was, you know, the Mike Harris days. I sort of remember that. Uh, you know, I, I remember being uh, locked out of school because of the teacher strike, because of Mike Harris's meddling. In some ways, I don't know if it's like a, you know, apples to apples comparison, but it seemed like uh, that was a time akin to the sort of darkness that we feel in, in Ontario, mm-hmm. if, if anyone is even slightly progressive or democratically minded. So I, I wonder if, if it's too much to say that uh, that sort of we've got to do this for ourselves and get engaged and love our city came out of, of a very dark time with Mike Harris and Mel Lastman, the scandals and, and the amalgamation that no one in any corner of the city wanted, uh, you know, it was foisted upon all the f- former boroughs of the, of the now mega city. Yeah. I mean, these things are cyclical, I think. Like there were a whole bunch of threads on this. The star had a whole thread about Toronto kind of falling apart. And I think people, especially with this budget crisis that's coming up, and if we're not bailed out by the upper levels of government, people are going to see the actual services that they like. And these are not necessarily people who, you know, pay attention to city hall every day, but want the the services. Mm -hmm. And city hall is very much a service oriented thing. So if the dead raccoons like aren't being picked up as reportedly we're not being picked up enough and, and, and garbage and thinking of my street in the West end of Toronto, the leaves have never been swept up uh, out of the gutters. We do it ourselves. So mm. there's no flood, but like just caking on and it'll be like the last couple of years where it becomes this kind of pulpy compost <laughs> that just layers and onto the streets, you're going to see this kind of crumbling. And I think that sort of visible demonstrative decline in Toronto that more and more people I think are seeing for a while it felt like I was a, or people who are like me who wrote about this stuff and paid attention kind of felt like chicken little saying, Oh, it's kind of going downhill. Um, but if this election was interesting that more and more people, even without prompting talked about the the decline. And so I think that would hopefully connect like the, um, the evolution of that will be, you know, more politically active people like, getting involved and saying, well, maybe this should not be this way. So maybe things have to get bad again before they get good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I think there's real parallels to that late nineties kind of, you had a hostile government in Queens park mm-hmm. uh, that was hostile to the city. Um, I, I, I draw real parallels between amalgamation that nobody in Metro really wanted to the council cut in 2018, those were very similar kind of traumas inflicted onto the civic body of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing um, an extension of that with the strong mayor uh, stuff that may or may not go through. There's definite parallels there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When I, when I started in the Rob Ford time, 
you know, I, I gravitated to spacing uh, as somewhere to to start because uh, it, it seemed like that energy that you talked about was was still there. It was still this idea of like we're going to light a candle instead of curse the darkness, but there was a lot of darkness there, and it seems to even though you know Meritori is obviously a, a more mild mannered character than than the former mayor Rob Fort. Uh, he he seems to uh, be happy to watch this decline that you're talking about happen under his watch, while t- telling us all that. Uh, He's got a very strong mandate and everyone's happy with mm-hmm. him and uh, that uh, actually we've never had it so good. Yeah, he's very adamant that we've never had it so good. And 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 <laughs> even the day the day after he got elected, he went on the rounds of morning radio. And I think twice he said something along the lines of, you know, it's not as bad as they say. You know, when I <laughs> met people on the when I met people on the on the doorsteps, unlike those colonists, uh, whoever they are. Um, that, you know, people, people thought this place was okay. So I think, I don't know if it's a willful bubble or if it's an actual just bubble of, you know, wealth and, and whatever world that John Tory lives in, he, he's still kind of going on with that, running with that line. I feel like I've spent, you know, the last number of years doing this show and, and, and my personal writing, just basically saying, you know, sorry for the language, but can you believe this shit? And, uh, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of doing that. So I'm going to try to uh, open my mind to the potential for good things coming. But, uh, you know, talking about pendulums and talking about what it was like during the amalgamation in the Harris days, I have to wonder if if uh, we wait for this pendulum to swing, do pendulums naturally swing, or do a certain amount of people have to somehow get together and, and give that thing a push? I think that, that whatever, that Trontopia is still there. And I think it'll be, if, if it comes back, it would be a better version whatever trontopia 2.2 uh 2.0 because like the first one was flawed because it was really downtown centric it was pretty white it was pretty um but it was like but it was the moment and and that's where it happened it kind of came it kind of happened organically there and then rob ford reminded everyone oh the suburbs exist or the inner suburbs you know it's Mm -hmm. not it's the city uh that that there were a lot of people that were actually left out of the prosperity and cultural frisson that Toronto had. So I think whatever version of, of that comes now, it'll be more robust and it'll be bigger. And I think that's kind of exciting to make it a, a different version of it that uh, is more inclusive of how Toronto actually is. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of an urbanism that involves uh, and celebrates all corners of this very large, diverse uh, city, I mean, not just diverse ethnically but geographically the building types the you know the strip malls of of uh scarborough or you know the the lavishness of downtown or yeah i brought my students today uh on a field trip my uft students to north york and we walked a rather frigid young street from uh mel lastman square up to finch station and you know i was was telling them that this is actually like that strip of young street which is kind of the second little Korea, um, it's the beginning of the, uh, the Iranian kind of community is a little bit more north of there, but it all kind of mixes. It's actually it's such an exciting place. And before the pandemic, we would kind of go up there every once in a while on a, like a Friday or Saturday night and the place is bustling. It's just like people everywhere. Cause there's now hundreds of thousands of people living along that strip in the, in the apartment buildings and adjacent area. And it feels like, you know, a 24 hour city. Um, 20 years ago, as the first version of Torontopia was coming up, it was interesting, but it wasn't as, you know, it didn't have the critical mass of humans. And a lot more um, centers, I think, in Toronto, as as they've become more dense, 
I've gotten a little more kind of critical mass of, of humans and, and I, I think in, in more places, public places for people to um, kind of gather. I think we kind of saw that in like with Nuit Blanche moving to different parts of, of the city. We went out to Scarborough before the pandemic, I think the year before the pandemic, when it, when Nuit Blanche first went there and it was amazing. There were, there were thousands of people walking around the Scarborough civic center grounds and inside of it, sort of like given the chance, given the space invited, whatever, like it's there. So that the potential, I think, is there. I think, I don't know, politically, we, I think maybe this will be an interesting um, council to watch because maybe there's a way politically to speak to the entire city. And that's been the challenge. I think, you know, like uh, Gil Penalosa, uh, I don't know if it wasn't his fault, I don't think, but like, I have to figure a way to talk about urbanism in a way that doesn't alienate people in in the suburbs who kind of have maybe a preconceived notion of it being you know not for them yeah and tori very much appeals to that i mean i feel better already uh you know uh yeah i i know those conversations and, and that energy is always happening in the background in various pockets of toronto i i do hope it reaches a critical mass not be, because things are are sliding and in, crumbling into scale although you know, arguably they, they are, and we're starting to see it, but, um, just because people begin to feel empowered again and, and take ownership of the city, uh, I don't know what makes that happen, but, uh, I'm leaving room in my heart for, for the possibility of, of seeing that, uh, in the next four, you know, eight years. Yeah. Toronto's survived bad times. It's had bad mayors like before, before the ones we've talked about today in its history. And it's the, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a cliche to say this, but like the people of Toronto have always been sort of interesting and carried the, carried the place along, um, which doesn't make any sense really because it's like the people who voted for the people in power. But, you know, those two things are weirdly connected, but also weirdly separate. And this remains an interesting place that people are moving to from all over the world. At the same time, people are leaving the city because it's too expensive. So like this is like, like two sides to every kind of good and bad thing in, in this place, which makes it complex and kind of exciting. All right. Sean, thank you so much. Thanks, Glenn. Now. Architect Kirk Kraler of ERA is one of the editors of a new book, The Signs That Define Toronto. I was lucky enough to be able to contribute a few pieces for what looks like a very unique look at Toronto, its history, and its many cultures. But I wanted to ask Kurt how the project came together and what the signs meant to him. Uh, so, Kurt, the uh, the book is The Signs That Define Toronto, and I wanted to begin by asking you, how, how did this project come together? Uh, well, first of all, I think um, the beginning of the project really started with my graduate uh, thesis in architecture at the University of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. I was interested in the architecture of Las Vegas and the history of development in the Las Vegas area. Uh, and in my number of research trips to the city, I got to visit the Neon Museum. Uh, and at the Neon Museum, it was really sort of a fascinating history told through the salvage signs of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Las Vegas is that buildings are generally not uh, preserved and 
history is told through ephemeral means like photographs, memories, signs, and there's less of a heritage preservation effort. And so that really sort of uh, signaled to me the, the significance of, of signage alongside with heritage preservation, uh, that it was complementary to the, the life of the building and, and telling the stories of cities. And when I was working at uh, ERA after I graduated from school, it was a part of a conversation that I had with Philip Evans, who was one of the principal architects at ERA Architects. And um, we had a conversation about one of our projects, which was about signage uh, preservation uh, on Young Street. And we were just commenting on the number of, of signs that had come to define this uh, central corridor in Toronto uh, along Young Street. And that's when we started to talk about the idea of a book. And it really sort of gained steam during the pandemic as a sort of uh, passion project between Philip and I. And that's when Philip suggested that we bring on Matt Blackett from, from Spacing. Mm-hmm. And that's where we started to, to create the idea for the book and thinking about what would be included in the book. And it, that's where it really all began was when the three of us uh, had that initial meeting and started to, to brainstorm potential ideas around a publication of signs in Toronto. And was there anything that surprised you in working on this book? Uh, something that kind of blew your mind or you took away from it? Well, I certainly learned a lot more about the city of Toronto through the book. I'm not originally from Toronto, even though I've lived here for over 10 years. Uh, I'm from a small town outside of uh, Windsor, Ontario and Amherstburg. So I've always been fascinated by, by Toronto. And every time I would visit, notice different uh, aspects of the city and new signs. So when I got to work on the book, there was still a lot to be discovered uh, about the city, especially in the the more suburban areas of Toronto, especially because I've been living mostly downtown. So I think what surprised me was just the the variety of different uh, signs that are on display in the the suburban areas of of Toronto, especially the the Chrysler sign with the the swinging lady, which has its own. Uh, history and local folklore uh, attached to it of people resisting the change of the sign over the years and uh, pushing for it to be reinstated back to uh, the original configuration with the, the woman on the swing. So I think that sort of attachment to signage was something that I, I really appreciated getting to the, discover within the city of Toronto and uh, the surrounding areas. So that, that sign, I think, in particular, was was one that really stuck out to me as uh, something that was surprising and quite uh, a beloved sign within the city. And uh, there's a number of uh, essays in the book by uh, contributors such as Jamie Bradburn, a wonderful historian, uh, writes a lot about Toronto, uh, John Lawrence, uh, Spacing Senior Editor, people will know him. You know, what, what kind of uh, topics do the essays uh, cover? Yeah, so um, that's great you mentioned. We have over 20 different contributors, um, everyone from authors, journalists, um, local historians to photographers, artists that we interview. We interviewed a a sign maker, uh, Dizzy Minot, and he really sort of outlined his storied career working on some of the most iconic signs uh, in Toronto, including the Elmo Combo and uh, creating the, the Zanzibar sign. So I think for the contributions of the various 
artists and makers, I think it was important to show them alongside with uh, historians, people that are reflecting on the, the history of Toronto. And so we really wanted to cover the chronological history of various signs in Toronto, as well as the social and cultural impact uh, of signage. So chronologically, we go right back to the first portrayal of signage through paintings that was completed by uh, Wayne Reeves, the city archivist. Um, and so he sort of documents and explores the earliest signs uh, of Toronto. And we end the book with uh, Navi Elang from the Toronto Stars, the technology writer mm-hmm. who looks to the future uh, of signage. And so we really cover the full span of analysis and critical thought around how uh, signage contributes to the visual identity of the city, as well as the cultural impact of the city. And then for contemporary signage, we also wanted to focus on three specific neighborhoods and uh, how contemporary signage has just as much of a a valuable impact on the city as the more nostalgic um, signage that we think of in terms of neon signs, painted signs. So for the three communities, we focus on uh, Chinatown, we focused on Little Jamaica and Toronto. Uh, so we asked um, Arlene Chan, the local historian who specializes in the history of uh, Chinatown, to to really think about the most valuable signs in the the community and what it means to to see culture reflected through signage. And we also asked Danica Samuel to look at uh, Little Jamaica and. Her continue her uh, extensive coverage and reporting on the implementation of an HCD um, or cultural district in the, the little Jamaica community. And finally, with uh, Panice Mayuri, who is a graduate of the University of Waterloo as well, asked her to explore the community of Toronto and how uh, being in a suburban context, how that affects and influences the configuration of signs within the Toronto uh, Persian Canadian community. So I think really covering those three communities, we really see the cultural impact of signage. Um, and that's something that we thought was a very important part of the conversation when looking at the signage of, of Toronto. Yeah, to your mind, having having worked on this book, you know, what what are some of those cultural, psychological, geographical meanings that these signs bring to to the city and the various communities within it i think the the importance of uh examining the cultural influence of of signage it really so shows how accessible signs are to small business owners a lot of them uh first generation immigrants who come to toronto to set new roots and being able to portray and convey their uh, cultural significance through signage, um, I think is very important to the fabric of the city of Toronto and a reflection of uh, its diversity of the inhabitants, of the occupants who live and work uh, within the city of Toronto. So I think by examining signage instead of buildings and architecture, you really have a bit more of an accurate portrayal of um, the people uh, within the city of Toronto and its its history. When we pitched the book to the executives at uh, ERA, one comment that we received from Graham Stewart was that signage is like the tattoos of buildings. And I thought that was a, a great sort of understanding of the, the personality that uh, signage conveys and how 
when it's placed on a building, you really get a sense of of the character and the personality and uh, the lives of the people that are within the building. So I think that was something that we really wanted to reflect through the book was just the the culture of the city uh, through signage. And so ERA as a firm does a lot of uh, heritage consulting. Uh, it, it specializes in thinking about, you know, what to preserve and how to preserve it. And, you know, there are some stories in this book, uh, some pretty famous, you know, there, there was a push to save or restore or protect in, some, in various ways. Should we take better care of our signs? Uh, you know, is this something that you hope will help people gain a better appreciation for, for the signs that we do have so that we, uh, we're not just looking back uh, through, through archival photos? Certainly. I think um, that's definitely a point that I make sure to introduce uh, in the introduction of the book is that I think this is part of a, a conversation that would be great to continue beyond the pages of the book is around restoration and storage and um, salvaging of historic signs in the city of Toronto. I'd like to point to the Fillmore's Hotel uh, as it's on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's also the center of a I would say a, a bit of a debate that's happening right now about uh, salvaging signs in place. And so currently it's being proposed that the sign uh, is to be removed from the the building itself, but the facade would be retained for future development. And I think there's something quite unique about the Fillmore's hotel sign that uh, if it was to be removed and placed in a new context that the um, existing condition would be hard to recreate just because of its unique placement on the building facade, especially at the sort of bend in the road at uh, Dundas Street, just east of Jarvis. But the placement of the sign was crucial to attracting attention to the, the space and that that rounded prow at the corner of the building um, with the the tall vertical lines of neon going up to the the neon sign at the the top of the building uh, connecting and drawing attention to the entrance at the bottom of the prow. I think there's something quite specific and site-specific about the sign that's important to preserve in place just because of its long history. Even before the Fillmore's Hotel went in in the 1980s, there was the Westover uh, Hotel, which had the exact same sign and had just had the letters replaced. And so I think the, the history of that intersection, that corner, is really tied to the, its signage. And it's not specific to Fillmore's, but it's also specific to the building itself. So I think that's something that's a specific example of keeping and retaining in place uh, and the value of, of signage to buildings and not relocating them if it's unnecessary. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for uh, telling me about this book. Uh, I hope everyone goes out and gets a copy. Great. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for your contribution to the book as well. Oh, it was my pleasure. And The Signs That Define Toronto is on sale now, and you can find it at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West, spacingstore.ca, or other fine establishments throughout the city this holiday season. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your fellow campaign volunteers, your grassroots community group, 
and the Neon Enthusiast in your life. If you have a moment, please give us a rating on iTunes and help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, joyous holidays, and I'll talk to you in the new year. Cheers. Cheers.